Sometime before we had moved into our house, seventeen years ago, an enormous, too close tree had been removed by its previous owner. We were left with its ghost, a sizable stump one meter across, as well as a ring of small brown mushrooms that grew around it in a protective ring, too late, standing guard. The home inspector blamed the old tree for the long vertical crack in that corner of the house and a few smaller ones deeper down in the foundation. To make matters worse, an ancient river and its bed of heavy clay run south to north, right through our lot. A tree will drink what water it can find, and during summer heat and drought, some soils, like clay, for example, will contract and then pull away the supporting earth from beneath the house will cause the foundation and the walls to teeter, shift and settle unevenly, precariously, into their newfound spaces. Painful breaks and cracks are not far behind, and it is through these that water from early spring melts and heavy rains force their way into our basement. We've since regraded the earth around the house, filled the cracks, and made peace with the charms of an aging house. My favorite museum in the world is the Pitt River in Oxford. To enter, you have to search for a small door located at the back of the Natural History Museum. It will take your eyes some time to adjust when you step into the dusk of Pitt River, when you leave the openness, the light-filled spaces. Over half a million archaeological objects, photographs, and manuscripts from all parts of the world jostle for space here, including an enormous 11-meter Haida totem pole, raven at its base, then bear, human, bird and frog on top to watch soft-souled attendants carry heavy flashlights, helpful stewards who will slide open smooth oak drawers in upstairs corners that contain, among other things, witches' toes. In this incredible museum, visitors can compare artifacts grouped thematically by form and function rather than by age or geographic origin, which is the more usual museum practice. Little interpretation is given. Visitors are invited to draw their own conclusions, allow curiosity to guide their search. Tall wood and glass cabinets hold and display magic, ritual, smoking, weapons, and body art. The cabinet for treatment of dead enemies used to hold sunsets, the shrunken human heads of Peru and Ecuador. But the Pitt River is not immune to controversy, has had to address its own colonial past, 
has moved its senses into storage, though not quite ready to repatriate what has been ogled by many Western eyes. Of the seven human heads, each roughly the size of an orange, three are likely authentic, the other four are thought to be forgeries, crafted out of bodies, stolen from morgues or hospitals, reports for the Guardian, David Batty in his article, Off with the Heads. The large reshaping cabinet holds, among other things, Burmese neck rings, which, I learned, don't actually lengthen the human neck, but rather push the clavicle and ribs down. The neck stretching is mostly illusory. Also in the reshaping cabinet are corsets, worn by many women not so long ago, Come to think of it, my grandmother kept one at the bottom of her closet, fleshy, rubbery pink. One hundred hooks and eyes, sucker-studded tentacles strapped her in, squeezed her, wrapped around her soft, warm body. Whalebone corsets in their bid to cinch the waist, to perfect the hourglass, Deformed rib cages, misplaced and punctured internal organs made it difficult to breathe and digest. Many women died, wasted away. Presented, too, were dainty lotus shoes for Chinese feet that had been bound and broken, as well as modern, impossibly high-heeled shoes Signs of femininity and erotic capital, according to Wikipedia. There is a whole body of literature on high heels, that happy topic if you're interested in bunions, varicose veins, knee, hip, and back problems. Oh, and in the midst of all these reshaping tools is one medium-sized single silicone breast implant. Most of these practices were designed for beauty, to reshape, reform the bodies of young girls and women, and because they make it difficult and sometimes impossible to breathe or walk or work or run away, they also attest to a woman's reputable praiseworthiness, the desirable discipline to endure, and they signal the wealth of the fathers brothers and husbands who make the reformed women's bodies and their leisure possible. Picture for a moment a group of ladies high up on a narrow ledge, halfway up a cliff. Let's call it a pedestal, the place we put virtuous, nice girls and women. Now imagine our little party teetering about on that ledge in five-inch heels, long, towering necks, wasp-like, breathless waists, and tiny lotus shoes. They wouldn't get very far now, would they? Which is, I think, the point. 
I once read that when it comes to compliance, boys respond best to clear, firm rules, to being told exactly what is and what is not allowed. Boys will explore the space provided. Rebellions are expected, understood, forgiven, liberating. Girls, however, don't need such well-defined boundaries to know their place. Shaming and gossip, vague warnings and suggestions of what is ideal are enough to keep them on the straight and narrow path. Imagine for a moment standing on our ledge again, but this time its edge is invisible, unpredictable, shifting. How far would you venture? What steps would you take towards a verge that is unclear out there somewhere? The insecurity that unclear boundaries offer keeps little girls from exploring the dark forest, taking up arms, wearing two short skirts. Perhaps the reshaping tools were not then necessary, since gossip and pedestals are enough to keep women in line. As long as you conform, you should not have any trouble. Though another problem with pedestals, apart from shifting ground, is, of course, that they are narrow. A teetering misstep and its fall is inevitable. Unforgivable. We fill the spaces, the freedoms that we are allotted to us, it seems, whether that is our necks, our feet, waists, the gaps around our foundations or our minds. For the ground is shifting, rocking what we once thought to be true. Histories are questioned, reviewed, reformed, Nothing is sacred, or so it seems. Change is not easy, and it is scary to contemplate what will happen when the neck rings, the corsets, stiff ideals, and expectations are removed. Will the world as we know it teeter and topple? Well, it might, and maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe we're due for a shake-up. A revamp. Some years ago, two mornings before Christmas, I woke up to a lot more shoes, to a jumble of coats and scarves and mittens in our front hallway. The night before, our three daughters, boyfriends in tow, came home from far away, brought with them their noise old and new habits, dried up apple cores on window sills and coffee tables, long hair and sinks, wet towels, paintbrushes, and drinking glasses full of murky ink on floors, hunger and arguments, dreaming bodies everywhere. While we slept, the house creaked and expanded, took a deep breath, and filled the fine cracks that had opened up when the earth had shifted, when our world began to change. <laughs>